No? There we go. All right. Good morning. Today we are continuing our series on the Ten Commandments. Last week Dylan shared commandment number six, you shall not murder. This week is commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. All right. Um, so uh, I was just thinking about these Ten Commandments today. This has been a tough one to prepare for. Um, but, um, but all of the Ten Commandments we've been having a lot of fun with. I don't know if you've been having as much fun as we've been having preparing for those. Uh, but we've had a great time um, as we've been preparing for these Ten Commandments because we've been thinking about these messages and we've been thinking about how can we share a new way to look at these old rules. We wanted to turn our understanding of the Scripture on its head a little bit. Because that's really what Scripture is like. All of Scripture is like that. So many times I'll read a passage, and I've read it many times before, and I'll read it again and find something totally new. I, I think I, I didn't see that before. So, uh, so that's what's been happening for us as we've been studying. I hope it's happening for you as you've been hearing them. Dear, uh, Dylan will be uh, taking the next two commandments, and then I'll be back on July 28th to finish up the Ten Commandments. So today's number seven of ten. And because I listened in math class, I know we're about 70% through uh, Ten Commandments. But I do have to be honest with you, I've not been looking forward to today's message. I've known it was coming uh, for a long time. I've been dreading it since we started talking about this series. Uh, there's a story that goes around about uh, in minister circles about a church where the uh, preacher was going to be on vacation. So he asked the youth minister to preach for him that week. And he asked him well in advance, so he had plenty of time to prepare. So Sunday came, the preacher went on vacation, uh, the children's ministry team all got together and they got ready for the kids to show up. The worship team got together and they rehearsed one last time before the service started. The greeters all showed up and they were ready to welcome new guests in. And that's when the police showed up. So the police officer came in and explained that church would be canceled this morning because there had been a bomb threat. So the officer began to question the staff and just asked them, is there anyone you know, anybody, who might want to threaten the church? Can you think of anybody? And they said, they I have no idea. They couldn't think of anyone. So the officer explained that they would just have to wait a while, not let anybody else into the building until they'd be able to trace the call and get to the bottom of the threat. <clears throat> So after a few minutes, uh, the officer's radio uh, went off, and he found uh, out that he had some news about this threat. They were able to trace the call back to the church phone lines. So they thought that was kind of strange, and as they searched further, it was found that the call actually was traced all the way back to the youth minister's office. He was so nervous about preaching that morning that the idea of committing a criminal act instead of preaching was was the better option so that's why to this day when Tony preaches we disconnect the phones here at church <laughs> one of the of, of all the passage I've been given to, to speak on I mean I had uh, uh, a lot of different passages of all the passages I've had to speak on today's the toughest if I were ever going to call in a bomb threat today would have been the day that I called it in so I think we're good 
The greatest fear people have in America is public speaking. So imagine not only asking to, uh, to, be, to be standing up in front of a group and speaking, but to find out the topic that you're going to be talking about is related to sex. That'd be a little scary. Then mix in the fact that the sin that you're dealing with has caused tremendous embarrassment and pain for people who you love, who will be in the room listening. I haven't been looking forward to today at all. But I have been praying for you, and I've been praying for myself in preparation for today. And I've even talked to some folks here just to say, um, I want you to know what we're talking about next week, and I want you to know that I love you and your Heavenly Father loves you. And we need to talk about this thing that has wrecked your life. And I know it's a hard subject to talk about, and I know some of you... uh, have maybe committed this sin, and I don't even know about it. Some of you have been victims of this sin, and I don't even know about it. But I want you to hear that same message. I've been thinking how we've established some things through these Ten Commandments. Each message has been built on the one before. And it's going to be important today because we need to remember that adultery is sin. It's living outside of the way God created us to live. And we know that sin leads to suffering. It hurts those around us, and it hurts us. God created us, and he knows the destruction that adultery brings. And some of you know it too. Maybe you were the one that committed adultery, and you thought you wouldn't get caught. You thought it was just a one-time thing. You didn't really think it would destroy your family. Or maybe you just didn't think about the consequences at all. Or maybe you were the one that was blindsided by your husband or wife betraying you. Maybe you started to get clues when his or her work schedule changed. Maybe you innocently happened across some communication that was meant for somebody else. And now your dreams are shattered and you find yourself helpless about your future. It's going to be hard to hear what God has to say. But we need to hear it. So let's dig in to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, 14 says very simply, You shall not commit adultery. Just like every time we dig into God's word, I think it's important for us to understand what the words mean, just so we really can clarify and we understand what we're talking about. So I want to make sure we do that today with adultery, in case somebody might be confused. Adultery is when someone who is married has sex with someone other than their spouse. In the Old Testament, the word used here uh, in the original language means to break wedlock. So we'll start the day by looking at that literal breaking of this law, breaking wedlock. But in order to understand the seriousness of this offense in God's eyes, we have to understand what it means to be married. Now some of you are thinking, well, I mean, everybody knows what it means to be married, right? So it's a little bit simplistic. But I want you to stay with me here so we can, we can all be on the same page when we talk about marriage. I think very few people really understand what it means to be married in God's eyes or from a biblical perspective. We could easily do a whole subject just on that topic. But today we're only scratched the surface. I have performed marriage ceremonies for a, probably a few dozen people. So officiating a ceremony really isn't very difficult. Most people want the regular vows, they want the regular ring ceremony, they want the regular unity candle. Usually, I just have to go in a Word document, change a few names, print it off, and go. I I know that doesn't sound so uh, special for your ceremony, but that's what happens. 
And I have a regular message that I start every wedding ceremony with, and it starts like this. God himself is the author of marriage. God himself is the author of marriage. And what I mean by that is that Scripture tells us that God created marriage. We see this from the very beginning. Look at Genesis chapter 2. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and he shall be called, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. A couple of things we need to get from this passage. First is how and why God created the woman. Why did God create Eve? Scripture says no suitable helper was found for Adam. Some people, usually men, interpret this verse to mean that women are in some way inferior to men. But that's not what the passage indicates. Earlier God said it was not good for man to be alone. Man had a deficiency. He was incomplete without woman. So God made him a helper. The word here in the original language is not slave. It isn't servant. It isn't housekeeper. It's helper. The same word is used in other places. The same original word in the Hebrew is used in other places when God talks about him being man's helper. God is a helper. So it's really a positive and empowering statement for women. From the very beginning, God elevated women. It's been said that God created the first woman from Adam's rib, also could be translated his side, because that's where a woman belongs in the relationship. He didn't create her from his back, meaning that she should be behind him. He didn't create her from his chest, meaning she should be in front of him, but from his side, indicating she should be by his side through the, through the marriage. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. So after God makes the woman equal to the man, equal, different roles sometimes, but equal, he, God brings her to the man. So we're about to witness the first marriage ceremony, the first wedding in history. For all of you married people out there who said you wanted the regular ceremony like we talked about before, I'm guessing that someone gave the bride away in your marriage ceremony. Your father or a significant person in your life walked you down the aisle and gave you to the groom. This practice comes from this verse. God created Eve and he brought her to Adam and gave her away. Adam then says, you are flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Maybe you've heard that song at a wedding before. Then in verse 24, notice what God says. This is God talking. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and he's united to his wife and they become one flesh. So this is the beginning of marriage for all generations. And the important thing to notice here is that it's God who is doing something. 
We don't recognize in our culture today that that's how it works. See, we think we're the ones that do something when it comes to a, a wedding ceremony. Typically, a groom buys a ring, and he gets down on a knee, and he asks his uh, fiance to marry him. Typically, the bride does most of the planning and organizing. Typically, the bride's parents write a check for all that planning and organizing. Some of you know about that check that you, that you wrote. The state issues a license to make the marriage legal. The bride and groom say vows and they exchange rings. The minister signs the license to complete the ceremony. And what most of us remember about that ceremony is all the things that we did. But what we need to remember is that it's God that's doing something. Look at what Jesus says in the book of Mark. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. This all sounds familiar. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So this is Jesus talking. And see what he did there? He quoted Genesis chapter 2, but then he added some clarification. And because he's Jesus, he's allowed to add some things. What God has joined together, he says. Who is the one that's actually doing something when people get married? It's God. He's the one that joins together in one flesh. Marriage belongs to God. He gets to say what it is. So why did God create marriage? I mean, he could have put together any system he wanted. He could have done it any way he wanted. He was the one that created everything, including marriage. So why did he choose marriage? Because he wanted a way to show people what his love was like. People, even followers of Jesus, have all kinds of questions about marriage. What should the relationship look like? What holds these two people together? Can they walk away from the relationship? Can they just go from one spouse to another? Is the relationship rooted in romance? Is it rooted in sexual desire? Is it just rooted in a need for companionship? Or is it just a cultural convenience? Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Again, it sounds familiar. But then he adds this. This is a profound mystery. But what I'm, what I'm talking about is Christ and the church. A profound mystery. People don't know this. It's been hidden all the way back from Genesis chapter 2, all the way to the time of Jesus. This mystery had been hidden and it was revealed in the time of Jesus. And I think it's hard to understand even today how important marriage is. The purpose of marriage, the reason God created it, was to show the world what his love was like. Specifically, how Jesus loves the church. How he loves you. That's the purpose of marriage. That's it. There's not a good argument for marriage being about anything more than that. When a man and a woman get married, they make a covenant. It's an unbreakable promise, an agreement. The covenant is not to be taken lightly. In fact, the punishment for breaking the marriage covenant in the Old Testament was death. Serious business. The punishment for adultery, breaking wedlock, in the Old Testament was death. And when Jesus made this covenant with us, this New Testament, this new covenant, this covenant that mirrors our marriage relationship, 
He promises that those who believe in him will not suffer eternal death, but have eternal life. And he says he will never leave us or break that covenant. That's what our marriage covenant should look like. And in our marriage covenant, God makes us one flesh. He's the one that does the work. And it's a mystery, but God does it. And God's the one doing the work. It's not by our power. It's by God's power that brings us together in marriage. And when we're united with Christ in his covenant, it's him doing the work. It's not by any work I do that saves me. It's by the work that Jesus has done. So staying married or staying faithful in marriage is not about being in love. It's about keeping a covenant. And by keeping that covenant, we show the world who God is. And by breaking that covenant or by committing adultery or breaking wedlock, we tell the world a story about God that is untrue. We, call, we, we lie about God. And these lies about God damage the kingdom. And if you weren't a believer when you got married, or if your spouse wasn't a believer, and even people today who get married and don't understand all this mystery and how, how important these vows are, doesn't really change the fact that this is what marriage is about. God owns marriage. He gets to define it. It's not about you being happy. It's not about you having some feeling about being in love. It's not about raising kids. It's not about romance. It's about showing the world that this is the way Jesus loves you. And I'm not going to break my covenant because I'm selfish. I'm not going to break my covenant because my spouse has gained some weight. I'm not going to break my covenant because I found somebody different. That's just not how it works. And all the way, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, God is laying the groundwork for this. And in Exodus chapter 20, God is saying, adultery is not the way I've created you because it hurts you, it hurts your spouse, it hurts your kids, and I know you don't understand this yet, but you'll figure this mystery out when Jesus comes, you'll see that it hurts other people around you because you're telling lies about who I am. So now that we're clear on what marriage is about, and that took a long time to get through, we'll talk about adultery breaking wedlock adultery is when someone who is married has sex with someone other than their spouse i don't think we need to spend a lot of time talking about literal adultery it's so obviously wrong and not justifiable in any way and i know people try to justify it but you just can't it hurts your family it destroys the covenant vow that you made on your wedding day and there's not really more to even talk about. Even lost people know this. But we do need to deal with the issue of what Jesus said about adultery in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Listen to this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. That's pretty harsh. There's been a lot of debate about this verse over the years. 
Now, I want you to know that I take seriously the responsibility of rightly dividing the Word of God. That's what, uh, that's what we call it when we study to be able to present to other people, rightly dividing the Word of God. And I don't ever want to lead you astray. So I'm thinking about how I'm going to explain this, and I have to tell you that I'm a little nervous about explaining it to you, and here's why. Notice the consequences that Jesus, Jesus writes in here. Your whole body will be thrown into hell. Your whole body to go into hell. Jesus can't use any stronger language about the severity of the consequences of breaking this command. But we have to answer the question, what is it Jesus means when he says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, what does that mean? The American Standard Version says, anyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent. And the Greek word here means desire. Anyone who looks at a woman with desire. So I want to define lust. And you have this in your, in your bulletin if you want to take some notes on this. I think it's a good definition. So lust can be defined like this. A desire that we should not have because it is disconnected from our relationship with Jesus. This is not a desire that honors Jesus. Jesus is trying to save us and make us more like him. This is a desire that does not connect with Jesus. And it's directed toward the wrong person, not your wife or your husband. It's directed to the wrong person or object as to disorder our thoughts, feelings, or actions. It changes our thoughts, feelings, or actions. So lust isn't just noticing somebody of the opposite sex. It's going down a path that leads to wrong thoughts, feelings, and actions. And that change in thoughts, feelings, and actions are disconnected from who Jesus wants us to be. So I have an analogy that I want to share with you. <clears throat> Let's assume for this analogy that you're a man and you're driving down the road and you see walking up the sidewalk towards you uh, a, an attractive woman. And you might notice and admire her beauty. That is not lustful desire. It didn't change your thoughts, feelings, or actions. But if you continue to think about the image of that woman and you drive down the road a little bit and you decide, you know what, I think I'm going to just go, go around the block just maybe to get another look. At this point, you're starting to change your thoughts, feelings, and actions. You haven't committed literal adultery, but you're starting down the path. And maybe when you pass that woman, the next time you decide, you know what, I'm going to be a good neighbor. Jesus teaches us to be a good neighbor, right? I'm going to ask her if she needs a ride home. At this point, you have not committed literal adultery, but you are definitely on the path to adultery. You may justify your actions, but your thoughts, feelings, and actions have changed to focus on something not connected to Jesus. Next, you take her to your house and she invites you in. That is not literal adultery. But your thoughts, feelings, and actions are definitely moving in that direction. At some point along the way, you have committed adultery in your heart before you've ever committed the act. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Even before you commit the act, you put yourself in a terrible position. You've tried to see how far away you can move from God without crossing the line instead of seeing how close you can stay to God. And eventually that type of behavior will bite you. 
It may seem like a strange analogy to you, but some of you do this very thing when you're at work and you may have lunch with someone of the opposite sex. Or maybe you see how far you can get away from God without crossing the line when you're out of town traveling for business. Or maybe you look at pornography on your phone or your home computer, and that's starting to change your thoughts and feelings and actions. Or maybe you're in an emotional relationship with someone at work. And what Jesus is telling us is that we should avoid these situations because of where they lead. Several years ago, Angie was at worship practice. And I had the kids, and we went out to eat at Skyline. Uh, my son Easton must have been about nine years old, and he ordered too much food. He said, I really want a three-way and a cheese coney. And I was like, Easton, I don't know if you need both. Oh, Dad, I'm fine. Just, I want both. So we got both. He ate the little crackers that you get at Skyline, and then the kids' meal comes with ice cream afterwards, so he put ice cream on top of that. Now, one thing you need to know about Easton and I both, we have a terrible gag reflex. Uh, I believe every family has a designated puke cleaner upper, right? In our family, it's Angie, because if I see puke, I also puke. <clears throat> so I keep telling Easton, Easton, please do not eat too much, but he's like, Dad, I'm fine, and he just keeps, keeps eating. He says he's fine. We go home. Sometimes he and his brother get joking and laughing, and this particular night, they're laughing, and they're just like giddy with laughter. They're laughing so hard, and I keep telling them, guys, Easton is stuffed full of skyline. You cannot laugh this hard. He's going to get sick. Dad, I'm fine. Just relax. A few minutes later, Brennan comes running into the room and says, Dad, Easton's puking. So I run into the bathroom, and I mean, it was covered. There was puke on the toilet. There was puke on the sink, on the, on the wall, in the bathtub. And it wasn't just puke. It was skyline puke. So there's spaghetti. There are pieces of hot dog as big as my thumb. <clears throat> Wyatt, Wyatt heard the first service and he said, you need me to get a bucket for you second service? <clears throat> All right. That wasn't planned. <laughs> but that was a good one. Where am I? <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so puke everywhere, spaghetti, pieces as big as my thumb, it was disgusting. And I was furious, I was so mad, because I had told him, don't eat so much, and he did, he ate too much anyway. And then I said, don't get laughing, because you're going to get sick, and he got laughing anyway. So I was so mad, I said some things that I won't repeat here, and I probably shouldn't have said to him, but I did say something like this, okay, Easton, first off, chew your food. <laughs> Secondly, I told you to stop why do you always have to see how far you can go? And I tried to clean it up. I really did. I mean, I sprayed Lysol in a room. I got on rubber gloves, but I just couldn't do it. So I had to leave it. I just closed the door until Angie got home. <laughs> she probably should have left me over that. But I tell you that story because that's the way we are. We constantly justify things, and we see how far we can get, and we say, oh, we'll be fine. We can do this. We can go this far away, and we keep pushing the limits. I'm an adult. I can have lunch or dinner with a female business associate. It's 2019. 
I can have a Facebook conversation with an old boyfriend from high school. That won't cause any problems. But if we don't protect those boundaries in our marriage, we can quickly be at a place where we're committing adultery in our heart. And that leads to the literal act. That's what Jesus taught. And just like Easton, we find ourselves in a mess and we can't clean it up. We went too far and we can't clean it up. The damage is done and it's gross and it's disgusting and we're sorry we did it, but there we sit in our own vomit and we've hurt everybody around us and we and our family will never be the same. The penalty for adultery in the Old Testament was death. But in the New Testament, it changed. The penalty for adultery in the New Testament was divorce. In the New Testament, victims of adultery were justified in getting a divorce. And I know some of you have been through this. And you don't need some metaphor to illustrate the story because you've lived through the real thing. And I can't imagine what you've been through. For those of you who are victims of adultery, I hope you will remember this. Your marriage is a representation of who Jesus is. And Jesus forgives us. And it may be, it may be possible for you to forgive too. The punishment is divorce, but divorce isn't required. And I don't know if I could forgive in that situation, but it may be possible. Others of you maybe haven't committed that literal act, but all of us are in danger if we don't guard boundaries. So here's a practical thing for you to do this week. If you don't get anything else out of today, I want you to think about how do I set up boundaries in my marriage to protect my marriage? So I'm going to ask you to commit to do this this week. And Angie and I are going to do this as well. Sit down with your spouse and talk about what boundaries you can set up to protect your marriage. Maybe it's saying, I'm not going to ride in a car alone with someone of the opposite sex. I know it's going to affect my job and I'm going to have to drive more, but I'm not going to do that. Maybe that's a boundary you need to set up. I think your spouse should have the passcode for your phone. So they can know what you're looking at and who you're talking to. And maybe you need to have a person who will hold you accountable when you're traveling, someone other than your spouse. You can find a person in this church who would do that. I have friends that travel for a living, and I regularly text them while they're out of town and just ask them if they're, if they're behaving. I've asked one friend so many times, he thought I was crazy. He said, what do you think I do when I travel? I said, I just know it can be hard. There are dangers for us to try to see how far we can get away from God instead of seeing how close we can stay from Him. A church not far from here was just destroyed this year because the pastor had an emotional affair with a church member. The literal act of adultery never happened, but they were on the path and the damage was done and there were boundaries that could have been put in place to prevent that. It's a serious issue. It affects a lot of people here more than I even know. In the U.S., the average hovers right around 50%. 50% of people are unfaithful to their spouse. Statistically speaking, that means over 100 people in this room have been. And the numbers, sadly, are no different for Christians or non-Christians. And no different between men or women. But if we're going to be serious about living the way God created us to live, we have to put a high priority on marriage 
and the way that God joined us together. Honesty with our spouse and setting up these boundaries is a good place to start. Please do that this week. I think all of us want a marriage the way God intended. That's what we want. When we stand there and say those vows, nobody intends to break them. But we get selfish. We think we deserve something more or something better. We think no one will find out. We think we can get just far enough away from God that we don't cross that line. But marriage is for God's glory, not for ours. Marriage is a gift. And I've only scratched the surface um, personally of its wounds and wonders. I hope that you'll go farther than that too. In less than a year, Angie and I will be passing our 25th anniversary. She is God's gift to me, far better than I deserve. We speak often of the wonder of being married until one of us dies. It's not been trouble-free. So we imagine ourselves in our 70s or 80s when divorce is not only a sin but socially silly (laughs) to do. Sitting across from each other at Cracker Barrel. I hate Cracker Barrel. (laughs) But I can't wait to sit across from her at Cracker Barrel, eating dinner at 4 (laughs) o'clock. Smiling at each other's wrinkled faces and saying with the deepest gratitude for God's grace, we made it. Looking forward to that. I want to leave you with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said this about marriage. Welcome to one another for the glory of God. That's what it's about, for the glory of God. That is God's word for your marriage. Thank him for it. Thank him for leading you thus far. Ask him to establish your marriage, to confirm it, to sanctify it, and to preserve it. So your marriage will be for the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, I just come to you again and thank you for today. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, Father, I thank you that your word has so many things that we can look, like, look at and just be uh, excited about and, and happy to hear. But Father, I thank you too for the things in your word that sometimes are hard to hear. And, uh, Father, today I think was one of those subjects. So, Father, I just pray for the hearts of the people who have heard it today, that you would have prepared those hearts and that they would receive it well. And, uh, Father, I pray that uh, your word would go forth and do what it does, change people's lives. So, uh, Father, right now I pray specifically for the marriages that are represented in this room. Father, I pray that you would... um, Father, that you would heal those that need to be healed, that you would confirm those that need to be confirmed. Father, that you would sanctify and purify those marriages that need uh, purification and that you would preserve all the marriages represented here. And Father, I I do pray that we take seriously this um, idea about what marriage is, that it it was created to show people the way that you love the world. So Father, help us to be able to be a representation of that in our marriages. Father, um, we do thank you for the way that you love us 
And um, Father, just pray that our marriages would reflect that. We thank you most of all for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.